good afternoon. Um, it's great to be back in the United States. Yeah. Um, great to be back with all of you guys again. We missed everybody. It is, uh, we had a fantastic time, obviously, at Hope Youth Corps in Trinidad, uh, Hope Youth Corps in Philadelphia. We were gone there for two weeks. We were back for three days. Then we went for eight days to Trinidad and Tobago, and we had a fantastic time there. I uh, wanted to just bring everybody up to speed with uh, what we've been doing and what we did. Leslie's going to have some words to share, and then we'll get into our sermon for this morning. Um, so... We uh, took up a collection. Thank you very much for all of you guys who gave and sacrificed the, the couch change for, that we gave for change for the Caribbean. We collected roughly $800, and that was able to pay for a ticket, pay for Leslie's ticket, really, and just a, a tiny bit more, and uh, got us down to Trinidad for those eight days. We went down there for their 30th anniversary, um, which was um, so much fun. They had... Um, people from all over. Sam Powell from New York City came in. Sean Barnes came in from New York City. Um, Paul Williams from Barbados came in. Uh, they uh, co-lead the church in Barbados, and they were there on the original planting. Um, uh, Errol and Ave, they're from Guyana. They came over. Um, Silbert and Jill from Grenada, they came over. They lead the church there now. Um, there was some Vincentian Teens from St. Vincent, we call them Vincentians. So the Vincentian teens came over for the teen camp that Trinidad was having right before the 30th anniversary, so they were there. The Bridges were there, so another couple was helping out the church in Texas. And then, who'd you say? Oh, Brian and Michelle. Brian and Michelle Santos, who were in Orlando, who were also, Brian was on the original team that planted the church there 30 years ago as well. Um, they came down. So a big crew of people, and obviously Leslie and I were there too. And um, they had a mini conference. So it was um, that Saturday. Uh, we had lessons from 2 to what? 6? I can't remember. I can't remember. 2 to 6, we had lessons. We um, had food because you always got to have food. And then we had an awesome night of worship and uh, a 30th anniversary video that they had put together as well um, that was really, really encouraging. Um, one. Uh, unique thing that happened was I've told the story many times about a church that God planted in a place called Sandy Grandy, which is out in the bush. And the, the brothers really and their wives that had gone out to, to start that work, they were in their 70s. God totally and completely blessed that work. I can't remember, 12, 15 people had gotten baptized in a very short amount of time. Um, one of the brothers, his name is Bob Peterson, he's originally converted in Boston, moved to Trinidad in the uh, 90s, um, passed away. And he passed away the day after we arrived. So we got there Wednesday. He passed away early Thursday morning. And um, it was just so saddening because this brother was, I mean, you couldn't imagine a stronger, more faithful more Jesus-centered and Jesus-focused brother, always focused on the mission, always focused on loving the other brothers and sisters in the church. Um, just a phenomenal example. Again, until he was 74, and he was still going strong. So he passed away. That was uh, tough, tough to hear. Um, but it was really like, I mean, the timing couldn't have been better because... During this 30th anniversary, when everybody's focused on the hand of God, which was the theme of the whole weekend, um, this brother passes away. And so as everyone's focused on his example 
and his life as we're considering the last 30 years of the church. So uh, that was good. Uh, we went down to the teen camp, which is in southern Trinidad, and I preached down there. I preached really about what we're doing here. I preached about intergenerational relationships and the hot topic midweeks and encouraged the teens there and built them up that they can be used to make a big difference and a big impact within the church. So they were encouraged by that. Um, the Sunday service that we had was amazing. The church is roughly uh, 250 churches. There's, well, there's four or five churches throughout Trinidad and Tobago. They had an attendance of over 500 people that Sunday, which was, uh, I think, the biggest attendance they've had in many, many years. On um, Tuesday, no, Monday, we had a sing-along. So when someone dies, the tradition is you have people come over to the house and you sing. You just sing continually. This one was for two hours long. So we're, we all got together. We're in this pretty small room, and there's probably 50, 55 people there. We're all kind of cramped in in seats, all kind of facing each other, and we just start singing. It's just song after song after song, and in between that, we're sharing about Bob, and we did that for two hours, and then his funeral was Tuesday morning. So uh, that was that. Like I said, Leslie and I had the chance to preach for the marrieds during that uh, mini-conference. And then on Tuesday evening, um, I went, the campus ministry put together a, um, a seminar on Is God Real? And so they had the campus ministry there, can't be more than 10 disciples. There's probably 40 people that were there. Again, we had food, free food for everybody, so that was fun. And I basically shared my testimony since I came from an atheist background. And I had the chance to take some questions and answers from people as well. So the church was built up. The church was encouraged. The church sends their love. They're very, very thankful that everybody was able to come and hang out and have a great time. So you want to... Yeah. Leslie will fill in the blanks and add some more color here. Yes. So I wanted to thank the church. Um, They were so happy to have me. Tony's been back twice. So this was my first time back in three years. And so every time he went back, they were like, where's Leslie? Where's Anthony? He hasn't been back yet. Um, But they see you on Facebook. Um, And Brooke, this was her second time back. So they were just so happy. And I was so happy to see them. It 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 was emotional for me to see everybody. But it was just really encouraging. So just a few of my highlights for me. It's always about the fellowship, no matter where I go, the conferences and everything else. To me, it's just the fellowship and being with the brothers and sisters. So the fellowship was a highlight and learning more about God's love. Um, So really quickly, let's see, being back in Trinidad, Bob's funeral, of course, that was bittersweet. I did not know how sick he was. Every time Tony goes back, he goes and visits him. And so in my office at home, Cedron, her name is Cedron, his name is Bob, converted in Boston, Before we left, they came, and he was normally healthy. I mean, this is a 75-year-old man, and they had, it's them and their friends, and they just share their faith, and they serve people, and they have their, they have canes, yeah, they have their canes, and they're just going, you know, and sharing, and so they came and brought me a poem. She, She made this, she sewed this purse, and she has this poem, it's called God's Shopping Cart. And I have it up in my um, office. That's the last time I saw them. So going back and knowing that he had declined so quickly, and then the next day he passed away. And Tony just broke down in tears because he was so inspired by him. But being there, 
for that sing-along, singing together is so healing, and it was very encouraging to be there to encourage Cedric, the wife. Um, and then for the funeral, just to see how many people he impacted um, and to just learn from his life. And then staying with the Lafleurs was incredible. That's the new leaders who were born and raised and raised up there. They're working hard. They say hello to the Dowdies. Um, so it was great to be with them as well. And then um, lastly, we went to Maracas Beach. That's where these are from, Maracas. I brought them back to play here. So you'll hear me like trying to learn how to play this. I always wanted to play an instrument. So anyway, I bought this back. I'm going to be playing, you know, trying to learn. Anyway, so we got to go to this beach, one of my favorite beaches. And actually live closer to the beach here than I did in Trinidad. And Trinidad, it takes about 45 minutes to get to the beach because you go all through the rainforest. And it's, but we, we got there on Monday, even though it was raining, it was good to see the beach. And one cool thing is that there were two people I really wanted to fellowship with. I don't know if you know, some of you know the pals, Sam and Cynthia. I wanted to get some, they lead New York, the church in New York. I wanted to get some fellowship time with her just to pick her brain. She's older, you know, wiser, and she was busy. And then Sam, I don't know if you know her, she leads Camp Miracles. She's Kane's mom. She was just there at Hope Youth Corps with us, and she's Trinidadian. And she happened to be there for a wedding, right? So we're walking out of the beach, and sure enough, both of them come, the pals and Sam, Kane's mom. We see them there at the beach. So I got a chance to fellowship with Cynthia. I picked her brain. Sam, we had a great talk. And I learned a lot. I got great advice. And then um, lastly, we have another friend named Patrick who almost passed. He did pass away. And he shared the communion, and it was very moving. And he shared about, you know how you hear people who say they went to God, and then they came back, and there's all these stories. Well, I'm so intrigued by that, but I don't know any of them. Well, this brother I know and I respect, and he's been a disciple over 20 years and um, converted in London. And he said he died and went into the presence of God. And he shared about it at communion. And so I was like, I want to fellowship with this brother. So I went and talked to him, and I won't share what he shared, but I wrote it all down, and I texted him and asked if he would videotape it. So I learned a lot from him too. So I learned a lot about God's love, and the fellowship, and I'm happy to be back, and we had a great time, so thank you, it was a lot of serving, but serving in God's kingdom is good, and the fellowship, so they send their love, glad to be back. Okay, so if you could um, turn with me to John chapter 8. Again, the, um, the theme of of their weekend was the hand of God. And as we looked at this 30-year video, they broke it up into three parts, the first 10 years, second 10 years, third 10 years. Um, When we were there, we were part of that third 10 years, but when we were there, it never seems like God is doing something in the moment. You know what I mean? God does things typically in a really slow kind of a way. But then when you look back, that's when you're like, Wow, like look at everything God has done, right? And that's what that um, video presentation was for all of us. It was like, oh my goodness, like the church started with just a handful of people that came from Jamaica. You know, none of them were even Trinis. And then now look at this big church that's there. Look at all the lives that have been changed. And I thought about that for us here in Hampton Roads. I thought about that for us here in Tidewater. 
as a couple of our Bible talks have, have gone to South Beach and other people are um, going to different regions and moving, or lots, lots of different changes are happening within Tidewater, it's hard to see what God is doing in the moment. But when you look back in hindsight, that's when you see, wow, look at what God has done. And so I want to encourage us and help us to think spiritually about everything that's happening and everything that's going on. This is simply a new beginning. That's all it is. It's another opportunity for us to get closer to one another, another opportunity for us to get refocused, to hunker down, to get back on the mission again and watch what God does, not just through Hampton Roads, but through the Tidewater region as well. Amen. Amen. John chapter eight. I want to thank Ricky, Reggie, Joe, Tom, Ed for leading while Leslie and I were gone. These guys coordinated everything, the midweeks, the Sunday services, and took care of all the, the problems and the challenges and the issues. Thank you so much for doing everything that you guys did. I appreciate it. And then um, also Ricky. Ricky's not here. He's out of town. Joe's out of town too. But uh, Ricky, Cody, and Chance, you guys preached as well. I saw Chance. He's back there. Thank you so much for preaching the word. You guys did a fantastic job. I listened to Cody's lesson, but I didn't, li- I didn't even see yours up there. Maybe it wasn't recorded. But I heard it was good, though. So, amen. Thank you. Again, the Gospel of John. John chapter 8. John's Gospel, again, it seeks to answer this question. Who is Jesus? And we've gotten many answers so far as we've gone through this Gospel. But none quite like the answer that we'll get today. There's serious opposition to Jesus in John chapter 5, and at that point they make a decision to kill Jesus. And the passage that we've been looking at, or you guys have been looking at for the last few weeks, is in John chapter 8. It takes place during the festival or the feast of tabernacles or booths. Water and light were major themes during this festival, and Jesus capitalizes on both of these themes in an amazing way. By making two incredibly gracious offers. The first is in John chapter 7. John writes and he says that on the last and on the greatest day of the feast, Jesus stands up and he says, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink, and streams of living water will flow from within them. And then that same evening, as we're in John chapter 8, as they have the the, the light ceremony, Jesus gets up and he says, He is the light of the world, and whoever follows him will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, Jesus does this knowing that they want to kill him. And you remember, Jesus went to this festival incognito. His brother said, hey, why don't you go? You're a rock star. Go on down there. Make a big deal of yourself. Show everybody all of your miracles, and everybody's going to follow you. Jesus says, I'm not going to do that. I'll go there on my own timing. And he goes kind of undercover. And but as he's there, he still reveals himself and shows himself at the risk of death so that he could make these two offers to people and really to us. That he offers living water and that he is the light of life. The rest of John chapter 8 is a lengthy back and forth between Jesus and the Jews as Jesus continues to tell everybody who he is. And the Jews fight him every step of the way. 
And so this afternoon, we're going to look at the ending of this argument, and we're going to look at what offended the Jews so much that they tried to stone the Son of God. The title is Greater Than Abraham. We're going to pray, and we're going to pray in particular about these two mass shootings. I don't know if you guys have heard about that as yet, but um, I, I was following the first one in El Paso. Roughly, I think 20 people were killed in El Paso yesterday. I went to bed at like 1230 or something, and I wake up this morning and boom, there's another one that had happened in Dayton, Ohio, where another nine people were killed. And so let's take some time to pray. Jesus is the only solution for this stuff, okay? He's the only solution, so let's pray. Father, uh, in the midst of our um, lives, in the midst of our country, in the midst of this world that's so full of sin, we look to you. We look to you for hope. We look to you to be filled by your Holy Spirit, and we look to you for light. We look to you for life. We pray that, Father, we could be many reflections of your son Jesus all throughout this country and all throughout this world that needs so much help, Father. We're so enslaved to our sin, and men are so captured and drawn away by Satan and his plans that they do some of the most wicked and heinous things. Father, we pray for these families, the survivors of these two tragedies in El Paso and in Dayton, Ohio. We pray that you would comfort them. We pray that somehow you would help them to reconcile what's happened to them in the past 24 hours, that somehow they would be able to make cosmic sense of what's gone on, but obviously only through the lens of your son, Jesus Christ. Help them to know and to see, Father, that you are the only answer, that your son is the only solution to these tragedies that come upon us, what seems to be now on a monthly, if not weekly basis. basis. We've suffered our own similar tragedy here in Virginia Beach. And so, Father, we all empathize with these people that are, that are out there. And God, we just pray that as we look at your word this morning, that you would fill us with hope, fill us with inspiration through your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to see all that he is in you. And we pray in his name. Amen. 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 John chapter 8, the last section here, beginning in verse 48. It says, the Jews answered him. Aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I'm not demon-possessed, said Jesus, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he's the judge. Very truly I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this they exclaimed, Now we know that you're demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim is your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. 
He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham? Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. There's a lot of interest today in our genealogies, right? For $99 or maybe a little bit more, you can buy a DNA kit. You can take a a swab on your inner cheek and send it away to a lab and they will uh, analyze that and they'll let you know your your ethnic breakdown. You might be 28% Irish and you might be 33% something else. I don't know. I'm just kind of talking off the cuff here. But you know what I mean. These tests will help us to see and to find out who our ancestors are. And even in some cases, uh, living people who are related to us. And we're interested in these tests because they really do answer some basic questions that humans have. One, who am I? Who am I? Where am I from? And where am I going? These are some of the fundamental questions that we have as human beings. And if you take one of those tests and you're related to someone powerful, right? What does that mean? Well, that means that I must too somehow in some way be powerful myself. You know, if if one of the presidents is, is in my lineage or heritage or if I'm related to some far off king in some other place, that means that, hey, that I've got a, a little bit of greatness inside of me, right? Now, I hope you're not related to like a criminal or something because that's kind of a disappointment. But if someone is in your family tree and they've been through a struggle, they've been through a hard time, maybe they stood up for people, we kind of take a little bit of that on ourselves, right? And we think, well, maybe that's where I got it from. Maybe that's why I'm a hard worker. Maybe that's why I stand up for justice for other people. We do tend to take some of our present day cues from our lives, from what we know about our heritage. And people have been doing this from the beginning. It's not new simply because we've got DNA testing. The Jews were famous for this. They claimed rights and privileges based on uh, the patriarchs that they were descended from. Uh, Depending upon who their lineage was from, that determined where their plots of land were in Israel. Uh, Depending upon who they were descended from, that determined whether or not they would be a part of the Levitical priesthood and serve in the temple or not. And in Jesus' day, they claimed spiritual privilege from being descended from Abraham. Abraham was the father of their faith, and being a descendant of Abraham through Jacob in their mind, meant that you were a part of the divine race of people, that you were chosen by God, that you are part of the holy nation of Israel, and that you are a true Jew. And yes, God did make the children of Abraham a mighty nation. But in Romans chapter 9, Paul writes and he says, For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded 
as Abraham's offspring. And so there's a difference between ethnic Israel and spiritual Israel. And just because you're descended from Abraham does not mean that you're a part of the spiritual community of God's people. That's based on faith. So under the new covenant, we, all of us, we all must come to God and have our sins forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. Your ancestry does not make you saved. It does not matter that you have three and four pastors in your family. It does not matter that your parents are Christians. We all have to approach God on our own and be cleansed by Jesus' blood. Amen? But the Jews believed that their ancestry made them saved. So much so that John the Baptist had to, had to call them out in Luke chapter 3. I'm sure you remember the passage. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And so John in the Old Testament scriptures called for repentance to be right before God. And the Jews thought they didn't need to repent because they were descendants of Abraham. And so this tradition was firmly embedded into their culture. They held on to it so tightly that it blinded them from seeing who Jesus really was. So in John chapter 8, verse 31, we begin to see where they introduce this theme of Abraham into their argument with Jesus. In verse 31, to the Jews who had believed in Jesus said, If you hold on to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants, and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? And so because they were Abraham's descendants, they claimed that they had never been slaves. I guess they had totally forgotten about being enslaved by the Egyptians for those 400 years. They forgot that they had been taken into captivity by the Assyrians. And then about 150 years later after that, they were taken into captivity by the Babylonians. And then after that, the Greeks took over Israel. And then after that, the Romans took over Israel. And kind of in a sense, they were kind of slaves even as they spoke because the Romans occupied Israel at the time. But I guess they forgot about that. In John chapter 8, verse 37, Jesus says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you're looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I'm telling you what I've seen in the father's presence and you are doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they said. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. Ouch. And so they claimed that Abraham was their father. And yes, he was through blood, through the DNA test, but not spiritually. And so I read these to help you to see how deep it was that they're automatically bringing up Abraham as their defense. He was their justification. He was their security. And so when Jesus begins to put himself above Abraham, when he suggests that he's greater than Abraham, that's what really ticks them off. That's when there's a real problem. And so Jesus says down in verse 51, 
Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. And so believe it or not, through this whole argument, Jesus is actually trying to help these Jews to be saved. He's trying to enlighten them. He's trying to give them light. He just said he's the light of the world. The torches were burning in the backdrop already. And Jesus is using that to say, I'm trying to give you light by trying to show you who I am. He's trying to open their eyes. He's trying to help them to see that they don't see as well as they think they see. Now for me, I wear contact lenses and I'm nearsighted. I can't see detail on far distances. When I started driving at 16 years old, I barely passed the eye exam. I remember I stuck my head in that little machine that they give you and I remember the woman told me, you're right on the edge, but I'm gonna go ahead and give you a license. I was like, cha-ching, yes! (laughs) But my friends in high school, they used to be scared to drive with me, especially at night. Because I couldn't, I mean, I saw the big green signs on the highway, but I couldn't read them until I was like right up on them. And many times it was too late, you know, like, oh no, I need to be going this way, you know. And so that's, that's just how I was all throughout my high school years. I never got glasses, even though I thought I could see. I got the, my first couple of years in college, I went to a small school and so I sat in the front of the class. I was easily able to see what was on the the chalkboard at the time, no big deal. But when I went to Germany my junior year, they had these huge lecture halls. And I ended up sitting in the back and the professor was way up there in the front and then he would write on the whiteboard. He was writing in German anyway and I just, I couldn't see anything. And so the the Americans that came with me to, to Germany, they said, Tony, you need to get glasses. And I said, I don't need no glasses. I can see. They said, Tony, you can't read what's on the the whiteboard. I said, nobody can read that. I said, can you read that? They said, yeah. And they're like, they rattle it right off. I'm like, oh man, maybe I do need glasses. So I went and I got glasses for the first time. I put on those glasses. I couldn't believe the difference that it made. Like, I was able to see individual leaves on trees. I hadn't seen leaves like that in years. I was able to read, like, the subway signs. And, I mean, I was walking around like, whoa, like, this is so cool. I can see. Tell them about the what? You're trying to embarrass me, honey. No, no. So, anyway... I thought I could see, but really, I couldn't. And my friends had to help me. This is what Jesus was doing with the Jews. He was trying to open their eyes to help them to really see. They thought they could see, but they were blind. They were in the darkness. Jesus had to keep telling them who he was and who they were not. They thought that they were children of Abraham. Jesus had to tell them, no, you're not children of Abraham. If you were, you'd be doing what Abraham did. They turn around, they say, well, you know, God is our father. Jesus says, well, if God were your father, on and on, he had to tell them, you're not a child of God. 
And he says, judging by your behavior, you're children of the devil. Open your eyes. That's who you are. They didn't believe the truth and they believed lies instead. And their behavior showed that they wanted to kill the son of God. And so Jesus was trying to help them to see this when he said, whoever obeys my word will never see death. He's saying that his words are truth, that they're not lies. His words are from God, that they're not from the devil, that his words have power. His words are not full of weakness. So much so that those who obey them will never taste the sting of death. And that's a great incentive to follow Jesus. But to do that, these Jews would have to stop believing what they believed. They would have to stop holding on to Abraham. They'd have to give up their religious traditions and their pride and start obeying Jesus. That's what a disciple of Jesus is. And that's what a disciple of Jesus does. It's someone who's given up their pride. Jesus says anyone then who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. We've got to give up those things that are dearest to us, the things that we don't want to budge on. The things that people are telling you, hey, you got to see this thing. And we're saying, I already see it. Jesus is saying, no, you got to give that up if you want to be his disciple. A disciple is someone who's given up their religion, their long-held traditions. And they've decided to start obeying Jesus Christ. Jesus reiterates this. He says it in verse 31. If you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And so I think we've got to look at our lives. We've got to ask ourselves and listen to ourselves and not pay attention necessarily to what we say because talk is what? Cheap. Cheap. Talk is cheap, right? We can say all kinds of stuff. And I know for me, I always like to think, all right, let me not listen to what the person says. Let me watch what this person does. And I think that if we look at our own lives in the same way, let us not consider what we say, you know, all the things that we profess, all the things that we claim, but let's watch our lives. I think that's going to be a great picture or image into whether or not we're actually following Jesus Christ. And I'm not saying that we're not. I believe that we are. I simply think that we need to look at our lives to help us to be more sober. Amen? Amen. Could we tell that we are disciples by how we live and what we do versus what we say? Religious pride harms us and it leaves us in the darkness, but obedience opens our eyes and it shows us the truth. Obedience turns on the light in the dark room. Obedience puts on the glasses And helps us to see when we obey. Jesus says, hold my teaching. Then you'll know the truth, right? Obey. Then you'll see. Then it's going to be clear. But it doesn't happen until we obey first. I was going to go down another tangent. Let me just keep going. I'm sorry. (laughs) Let's obey his word. And let's cheat death. Verse 52, at this they exclaimed, Now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets, yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? You can see they're getting offended here. He died and so did the prophets. 
Who do you think you are? They're offended by anything that begins to threaten them or Abraham. And that Jesus saying that anyone who follows my teaching or obeys my word will not taste death. That made no sense to them because the very prophets themselves had fallen victim to death. Abraham, the father of their faith, he had fallen victim to death. And so how could Jesus say anything beyond death itself? Like, how are you going to do what the prophets and Abraham were not able to do? Who are you? Who do you think you are? Jesus is so humble. Because if that were me, I'd have been like, look, I'll tell you who I am. (laughs) Right? But Jesus... Look what he says in verse 54. He says, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. He said, I'm not going to puff myself up. I'm not going to beat my chest. My father, whom you claim is your God, he's the one who glorifies me. Jesus didn't glorify himself. He let the father do it. That's a lesson for us. Seek not your own glory, right? Proverbs 27 says, let someone else praise you and not your own mouth, an outsider and not your own lips. But he goes on to say in verse 56 that Abraham, and I suppose that this is through a vision, that Abraham rejoiced at the thought of the Messiah's day. That God somehow had given Abraham a vision that the Messiah was going to come and this Messiah would would be the reconciliation of men and allow men to have their relationships with God back once again restored and Abraham he, he, he's able to rejoice as he sees this vision and it gives Abraham hope and Jesus is saying that even Abraham looked forward to him and as Jesus is saying this is just pushing them further and further over the edge and they're probably thinking Abraham looked forward to you Abraham looked forward to your day why would someone as great as Abraham Look forward to someone as insignificant as you. The answer is because Jesus is greater than Abraham. And if you notice, they didn't get offended by Jesus' comments about his relationship to the Father. Really quickly, verse 16, Jesus says that the Father sent him. Verse 18, he says again, the Father sent him. Verse 26 He says that the father sent him. In verse 28, he says that he's the son of man. In verse 29, he says the father sent him. In verse 38, he says he's been in the father's presence. In verse 40, he says that he's heard truth from God. In verse 42, he says that he has come from God and again that God sent him. Why did they not choose to pick up stones at that point? It was when he began to put himself above Abraham. It's when he began to encroach upon their religious traditions and their religious pride and their religious thinking. When he began to break that down, that's when they got ticked off and upset. In verse 57, you are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered before Abraham was born. I am. That was the last straw. They just couldn't take it anymore. (laughs) Jesus was saying that he was greater than Abraham. And not just that he was greater than Abraham. Jesus was saying that he was 
pre-existent. Jesus didn't say not, he didn't say before Abraham was born, I was. Right? He says before Abraham was born, past tense, I am, present tense. What's he saying? He's saying that I transcend time. He's saying that I'm omnipresent. He's saying that back when Abraham was there, I was there just like I'm here now. And just like I'm going to be there many, many years from now. Before Abraham was born, I am. And he does it using the same supreme claim to deity that the Lord himself uses in Exodus 3. Moses says to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God's saying, that's my name. I am. Just existence. Be. That's my name. And Jesus uses this exact name that Yahweh uses to describe himself. Before Abraham was born, I am. And so after all the arguing at the end of this chapter, who is Jesus? I am. He's God in the flesh. He's the savior of the world. He's your king and he's mine. The Jews got it finally, but they hated it. And that's why they tried to stone him. He was blaspheming by calling himself God. And he demolished their tradition by saying that he was greater than their father Abraham. Two considerations as we wrap up today. One, I read this and I fear. These Jews can too easily be us. If Jesus were to have the same conversation with us today, how would we respond? When he tells us to love one another, to speak to one another, to work out our differences with each other, and to be one, would we argue back like the Jews? Well, I don't really know. I already talked to them one time. I mean, it didn't work. They don't want to listen. Well, I don't really like them. They're not really like me. Well, they're older than me. They're younger than me. They're not like me. They live on this side of town, that side of town. They make more money than I do. They make less money than I do. They go to school. I don't go to school. Would we argue back? Would we have reasons and excuses for not being unified within our fellowship? And I say that because I know that there are instances of disunity in the fellowship. And no matter how much we preach about this and talk about this and we tell people, go talk to your brother, go talk to your sister. So many of us, we take the backdoor route and we go talk to everybody else about it. And we don't go and confront the issue. And tell the brother, tell the sister, bro, sis, you hurt me. You said this thing, you gave me a crooked, weird look, and it hurt my feelings. We've got to go to each other. And I wonder if we would argue back with Jesus. When he tells us to sacrifice our comfort for the salvation of others. 
Would we say that we have other things that are more important? But Lord, I've got two classes today. But Jesus, I've got to work a double shift. I can't sacrifice myself for the lost. That's unwise for me to do that. Obedience is the key. We have to obey his word. Jesus says, whoever obeys my word will not taste death. If you're a guest and you're in spiritual darkness this afternoon or holding on to religious tradition, obey his word. Let Jesus turn on your light switch and you will never see death. Ask the brothers and sisters who brought you out this morning to open the Bible with you and show you how. The second consideration is that in the same way that the Jews couldn't take pride in their status as Jews and descendants of Abraham, we too cannot take pride in our status as Christians. Paul writes in Romans chapter 11, he says, Again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Talking about the Jews. Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles, meaning us, to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? If some of the branches have been broken off, meaning the Jews, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive, olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do consider this, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, the branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider then the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you. Provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will also be cut off. The Jews were so secure in having Abraham as their father. And there's obviously a good security in being a part of God's church, having our sins forgiven. We have every reason to rejoice in our salvation. Amen? Amen. But there's a bad kind of security that looks inward and is more concerned with admiring our salvation, protecting our salvation, in some cases polishing our salvation, almost like it's a trophy sitting in a case somewhere. I've been saved. Here's my trophy. (sighs) Polish the little trophy. Stand back. Look at the trophy. Protect the trophy. Nobody get around the trophy. Do you see what I'm saying? That's how we sometimes can look at our salvation. That's the way the Jews looked at their lineage through Abraham. And we do that rather than looking outward and sacrificing for others, which is the reason why we have our salvation in the first place. Paul reminds us to be humble 
and grateful for what we have in Jesus. To consider the kindness of grafting us in when we didn't deserve to be grafted in. To receive grace and mercy in our lives when none of us did anything to deserve that mercy or grace. In fact, we did the exact opposite and we deserved death. But God lifts us up out of the trash heap. He connects us to that root, the root of his salvation. And he allows us to be nourished and he allows us to be fed by that root. God's kindness should move us and inspire us to gratitude and move us to look outward in our faith versus inward and try to protect our faith. He hasn't saved us to sit back and focus on ourselves and admire our salvation. We've got to continue in his kindness. He's been kind to us and saved us to focus on others and to help others find their salvation in the same way that we were able to find ours. Amen? And so Jesus, knowing that the Jews were looking for a reason to kill him, showed up at this feast and he makes offers of living water and of light. He risked so much, even for those who hated him. And he did it so that we could belong to him and truly be spiritual descendants of Abraham. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul writes, he says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Let's be humble and grateful for what God has given us through Jesus Christ. Amen.